0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. One of the documents disclosed by the Twitter whistleblower, Peter Zatko, otherwise known as Mudge, was a report based on internal interviews and documents that assess the company's ability to mitigate myths and disinformation. The report plainly states that the company, quote, lacks the organizational capacity in terms of staffing, functions, language, and cultural nuance to be able to operate in a global context, unquote. It found the company has a bias towards the English language and English-speaking countries, a problem that is particularly acute in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. A year ago, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen brought forward documents from that company that painted a similar picture of neglect, including underinvestment in content moderation, particularly in languages other than English, and particularly outside of rich Western countries. Another Facebook whistleblower, Sophie Zhang, highlighted how the company fails to protect elections in some of the more fragile parts of the world, ignoring the proliferation of inauthentic accounts and behavior. Whether these major tech platforms, not just Facebook and Twitter, but also YouTube, TikTok, and others that have similar weaknesses, will make the necessary investments to make their products safe in an international context is difficult to say. Despite crowing about their policies and investments in trust and safety, there's a great deal more to be done. The reality is underscored in a series of reports published in June by Article 19, an international human rights organization that seeks to advance freedom of expression and freedom of information worldwide. Working with the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, which promotes peace and cooperation, and with funding from the European Union, Article 19 studied three countries in particular, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kenya, and Indonesia, in order to evaluate the disconnect between the tech giant's content moderation practices and what is happening on the ground in the local communities, in which content is produced and distributed. The reports Article 19 produced take an in-depth look at each of these countries, documenting a lack of understanding of cultural nuance and local language, insufficient mechanisms for users and civil society groups to engage on moderation, a lack of transparency, and a power asymmetry that leaves local actors feeling powerless. To learn more about the project and its recommendations, I spoke to four individuals involved in the drafting of the reports.
1: Hello, my name is Pierre-Francois Ducchi. I'm the head of the Media Freedom Program at Article 19, which is a free speech organization based in London.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine Moya. I work as a Program Officer for Digital Rights at Article 19, Eastern Africa.
3: Hello, my name is Roberta Taveri. I work as Program Officer of Media Freedom at Article 19, and I cover the Western Balkans in specific.
4: I am Dr. Shirley Haristia from Indonesia. I am an internet governance independent researcher, and I am the author of the report, Content Moderation and Local Stakeholders in Indonesia.
0: I'm so pleased to have uh, you all with us today and to hear so many different voices uh, on this podcast, looking at different parts of the world. Uh, We talk about content moderation, social media, its interaction with society, with democracy, and to be able to really dive into these particular uh, countries and to, the, to see what's happening in the fabric of these particular nations is incredible opportunity. Pierre, I want to start with you, perhaps, though, on the motivation for this research and what set you off on this path and why you chose these three countries to look at.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you for for having us on, on the podcast, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a project of UNESCO, a Social Media for Peace, that is funded by the European Union. And our role as Article 19 in in this project has been to do research on the local impact of content moderation, how content moderation on social media is perceived on the ground in three countries, Kenya, Indonesia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. We're starting from the idea that in order to do regulation of content, you need to understand the local context where speech is taking place. Um, So we wanted to know whether platforms actually are integrating a robust understanding of the local context into their content moderation practices, be that algorithms or human beings intervening in the process. That's what we wanted to investigate. And and we wanted to have conversations with local civil society actors to also get their sense on that specifically.
0: What were the parameters that push you to choose these three particular countries. I understand uh, you were wanted to look at countries that in particular that had a uh, recent history of conflict.
1: Yeah. Um, so the, the project of, of UNESCO um, has a dimension of looking at how social media could contribute to uh, the dissemination of positive messages that can help, you know, work towards peace and, and resolution of conflicts in society. So the Selection of countries for the project was, was based on, on that perspective. And it's also a project that aims to serve as a pilot, which means that if the solutions that we're going to be testing during the three years prove to lead to positive outcomes, then there might be the opportunity to replicate them or to have um, additional funding to further work on, on them. But really the idea is to look at countries, at societies that have been divided Uh, by recent uh, conflicts or or that are very diverse with tensions between different segments or parts of the population.
0: So each of these reports uh, by themselves are 70-80 pages, Um, and of course there's a global report as well, so there's an enormous amount of material here. We'll only get to skim the surface, I assume, of uh, each one. But Shirley, perhaps we could start with you and uh, talk a little bit about Indonesia and how you did this work there. Tell me just a little bit about the overall context that you were working in there uh, and what you observed.
4: Sure, thanks for the question. So I need to briefly explain about the context of Indonesia. So maybe not many people know about Indonesia, but they know Bali. So actually Bali is one of the provinces in Indonesia and Indonesia is the largest island country located in Southeast Asian region. And it is the fourth most populous country and the third largest democracy in the world. And there are so many diversities in this country. While recognized as a country with the largest number of Muslims in the world, we also recognize five other formal religions. And also, we speak national language, our, our national language is Indonesian, but there are 300 local dialects spoken by 300 ethnic groups in the country. So with this complexity and diversity of Indonesia, like it is really impossible for social media platforms to understand all of the context in any content in question in this country. Even for me from Jakarta, Indonesia, the Western part of Indonesia, I might not be able to understand the insider jokes of someone coming from the Eastern part of Indonesia, like from Papua. What about someone from global social media companies? Are they really understand? being our local context and making the right and appropriate content moderation decisions in many of the content in question, I will stop there.
0: Each of these reports uh, does a great job of categorizing and uh, explaining also the kind of fabric of the civil society groups uh, in each country. Um, Can you speak to that just a bit? In Indonesia, who the key groups are, how they interact, and also perhaps a, a little bit about the role of the government with regard to content moderation.
4: For international actors, they might perceive Indonesia like the authority is very authoritarian, but actually, there is also a culture of dialogue among multi stakeholders, among state and non state actors. So, while the government is very keen to censor and moderate any content that they consider problematic, the civil society actors and organizations in this country are also very active in uh, monitoring and safeguarding the practices conducted by social media platforms, but also the government. So in this report, we decide we divided into at least two civil society groups. First, those civil society actors and groups who are already active in, in content moderation decisions of social media platforms. So they are typically civil society organizations working on digital issues. And some of them are the trusted partners of some social media companies. And the second kind of group is civil society actors and organizations. They are not that, just the trusted partner of social media companies, but they are impacted by content moderation decisions. And typically they don't know how to deal with social media companies. They even don't know that they can appeal to, content, to the content moderation decisions made by platforms.
0: You talk about um, several, in particular ICT Watch, SafeNet, uh, Mofendo, Um there are various other groups that are described here. Um, and that, again, you know, this sort of coalitions and the way that these groups interact uh, is, a, is a key theme across the board. You know, it's hard to kind of go platform by platform, but your overall assessment of Western platforms and their presence in Indonesia or the degree to which they engage with these groups, um, How would you grade them?
4: So our research found that actually there are some initiatives conducted by platforms to put some effort to be more inclusive and transparent by having some trusted partners with these civil society organizations and actors. But in reality, the negotiation process, when these civil society organizations, they raised some concerns with regard to the content in questions and the decisions made by platforms, there is no equal decision-making power between platforms and civil society organizations. And these civil society organizations and actors, they found it really frustrating. So there is a need that we saw in this report to make a coalition so that civil society organizations, they could work together and be an equal discussion partner with social media companies and also the authority.
0: Roberta, I want to come to you next um, and talk a little bit about uh, the context in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Explain to us what you see there and also in a peculiar context in a post-conflict state, but, but one perhaps that's that's a little further out.
3: Uh, sure. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, so our research has uh, been conducted by an independent researcher, a local independent researcher. And like uh, Shirley in Indonesia, uh, she, she conducted a number of, uh, of interviews with local stakeholders, uh, meaning civil society, media, academics, activists, uh, et cetera. And really the, the, the results of this, this research are the information that have been provided as, as a result of, of, the, of these interviews. The main problems that we have identified as, as a result of the research in our report on Bosnia and Herzegovina in relation to content moderation on social media are really related to a sort of disconnect between uh, social media companies on the one hand and uh, communities, media organizations, individuals that actually use uh, platforms on the ground. And the fact that this gap uh, remains sort of unaddressed uh, by uh, social media companies themselves. Uh, for example, if users, if um, civil society organizations working on digital rights try to uh, get in touch uh, with uh, platforms when it comes to, for example, content that has been removed or has been flagged or any other issue that relates to content where that they have posted, uh, for example, um, the communication uh, is most of the time very complicated, and this is the result of several factors. One is the fact that there are no uh, representatives of uh, social media platforms in Bosnia and Herzegovina, or even focal points that fall like that they focus specifically on uh, on the country or even on the region. Therefore, civil society actors or users have to deal with uh, have to try to, to reach out to companies uh, to representatives that are based, let's say in the US or in other in other countries outside of the region. And they also have to use a language with, which is not their own. Uh, so most of the time from interviews that uh, our researcher has conducted, we found for example, that if uh, they would flag content that is uh, in uh, a local language, uh, the response from social media platforms is, is much lower. If, for example, this content that is in English or if the answers are uh, articulated in English, uh, then the response is is much faster. So we see here a problem of both availability or accessibility of these platforms by civil society on the ground and also the ability of actually engaging in languages others than English, for example.
0: You describe a couple of different civil society initiatives uh, that have popped up to try to confront these phenomena, Uh, one which I won't try to translate, but uh, the group It's All Witches, perhaps you could tell us about, and then also the Balkan Discourse platform and how it engages with social media platforms.
3: Yes, these are um, actually positive examples of using social media uh, for, um, for, for peace and for a dialogue that is, um, leads to societal cohesion. And again, it's, it's a way of using social media um, platforms for good. Uh, and we wanted to highlight these examples, really not just to highlight the problems themselves, but also to highlight how positively uh, these platforms can be used, again, for peace or cohesion. It's All Witches, it was created by uh, a young academic and activist in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It was initially created on Facebook. It's a group that um, tries to use humor and some communications uh, materials such as uh, memes or, or other graphics uh, to try and open a dialogue, open a discussion among the group members around uh, issues that affect women in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And what we have seen as a result of the interview that our researcher conducted uh, with uh, with the founder is that um, this way of engaging attracted the interest of many uh, women in the country, both activists, but also um, normal women uh, who perhaps never really engaged on uh, issues such as human rights or uh, women's rights before uh, again, because of the the tone and the humoristic um, appeal, let's say of of uh, of uh, of the communication that was used. And as a result of that, the the engagement of users has increased. Um, they also, for example, members of the group also included uh, their partners as part of the conversation. So they also included uh, male perspectives into the discussion. And that also um, increased, uh, let's say, uh, the, the reach to the point that they also created other ways of communicating these, uh, these issues further, uh, such as the use of po- podcasts uh, or creation of other, other profiles on other social media platforms. So these are really ways of trying to use social media in a, in a good and, and positive way that would enhance so- social cohesion and, and uh, human rights across society.
0: And yet you still find uh, groups, including fact checkers like uh, Raskin Kavanji, am I pronouncing that correctly? Is that close enough?
3: Raskin <laughs> Kavonji. Uh,
0: okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> you are still kind of complaining of, of not having uh, enough access to uh, the platforms, enough opportunity to engage on a human level uh, when they're confronting uh, false information or attempting mm-hmm. to intervene
3: yes it really reconnects to the problem i was trying to highlight a bit at the beginning uh, in my first in my first answer to your question it's also a problem that as article 19 we have noticed um, more generally even beyond uh, the scope of this research in in these three countries uh, the level of transparency, the very low level of transparency of social media platforms in the way that they uh, provide information about uh, how they moderate content on their platforms, uh, what kind of content they moderate, how they categorize it, how they articulate it, uh, and also the very low level of interaction that they tend to engage in with users or communities or groups that are not necessarily Coming from the Western world, yeah, this really reconnects to this problem that we try to highlight in all the three reports, but as Article 19, we advocate for since a long time. Already.
0: Let's go next uh, to Kenya, Catherine. Hear a little bit from you and about your work there. I suppose somewhat uh, similar to what Shirley described in Indonesia, also a country with an enormous amount of diversity, uh, seventy distinct ethnic communities speaking to close to. 80 different dialects, and yet your report really focuses in on a couple of different things that I think are worth drawing out, election legitimacy issues that you contend with there, and gender-based violence in particular.
2: Yes, I mean, so from, from our perspective, yes, Kenya is a multi-diverse, multicultural country, um, and as you pointed out, we have many different um, ethnic groups who speak different dialects, but we also have two national languages, which are English and Swahili, so a majority of the population speak this language. However, because of this diversity in culture and ethnicity, um, this also influences how we respond or we talk online, and so you would find that one of the reasons why gender-based violence is really prominent online is because it's also infused with our own culture and so when it comes when it comes to having such content online um specifically because it's not in English words at some point it's very it, it becomes more difficult for platforms to actually recognize it or to actually recognize it as some type of violence um it's interesting that you mentioned the election because we've just come out of an election period in Kenya today our president perwanil One of the things that the report identifies is really what are the most problematic and key problematic types of content in Kenya, that being hate speech, misinformation, disinformation and online gender-based content. And what we have witnessed over the past year as we were doing our campaigns in Kenya towards the election is really just the amplification of these types of content online, um, especially when it came to misinformation. And I don't know what she said, but I, I just want to point out the fact that misinformation was also used to just reduce trust in public institutions, reduce trust in people, in institutions that are actually supposed to handle the elections. And the overall result is just to reduce election integrity and credibility and this comes really because one of the worst times of misinformation during our election period this moment was when we were waiting for the results to come out, and there were a lot of false information about which candidate won the election. And what was saddening for us is that this is something that we had particularly pointed out to platforms, and the, the sense in which they responded was not necessarily very effective. So, for example, the labeling of content on Twitter was not very uniform, and to some extent, it, it wasn't as responsive as it should be. And so I think that even the election engagement really, as um, my fellow colleagues were just talking about, should be more intentional and should be more, it, it should be more consistent. It shouldn't just be around election time. And then that's it, just a one-off engagement during election.
0: I'm speaking to you on a morning that the Senate Judiciary Committee is actually hosting Twitter whistleblower, uh, Peter zaidka who revealed one document Uh, relating to that platform's handling of election misinformation that concluded that the company, quote, lacks the organizational capacity in terms of staffing, functions, language, and cultural nuance to be able to operate in a global context. Is that your experience of Twitter or the other platforms in Kenya?
2: Well, to begin with, Twitter, a number of things even beyond the election is so. Twitter has recently introduced or has the platform manipulation and spam policy, and one of the most difficult things that we have to contend with within the, within Kenya is that this, when civil society organizations are using the platform for civic activism, this is sometimes confused with inauthentic behavior by the platform, and when the when the the accounts are mistakenly taken down or permanently suspended something that they don't understand, even though they speak English, they don't understand how an account can be permanently suspended, even without warning, without without any sort of thing. And what happens is they when they try to escalate it, they don't really get a response. And it's what, we, what we've pointed out in our report, that we have to intervene people with access to platforms because the platforms don't have direct local representatives. We have to intervene on their behalf. And even when we do, we have to struggle to tell the platforms why this is wrong why the taking down of a certain account is wrong. So, for example, accounts of social justice centers, which are really just community organizations in Kenya, or a local NGO that's working on sexual on, on gender-based violence. And we really have to struggle to tell the platform that, okay, it's not fair for you to impose a permanent ban on somebody's account just because you think that this content is wrong. And so my experience is that a lot of the people who make these decisions and who make the decision on whether the content gets reviewed or not, do not actually sit within the region. I dare I say they may, they don't even sit within the continent. And so you know, the, the idea that somebody else who's in a different locality, in a different region, is making decisions about what's happening within our local context without actually even heeding to the the things that we give them in terms of local nuances and local context, or well, to take that into consideration as they make their decisions. And the fact that not everyone might be lucky to also know me, to help me, to ask me to help them to intervene on their behalf. And so for me, I think that recently we've found um, studies that have shown who is actually doing the content moderation in the side of the continent. It's people who are per- paid very poorly and the companies are not really being very transparent about their engagements. They have, Meta um, has maybe four or five people within their office, within the office in Africa. Twitter has one person, TikTok has about a, a number who also sit in Dublin. The reality is that if they really want to make meaningful engagement with local stakeholders, then that engagement should be Consistent. It should be year in, year out. And we shouldn't only see the representatives as they are preparing for the elections so that they could say that they did something about the elections, but it should really be an intentional effort to try and find solutions to the problems that we're dealing with.
0: There are particular uh, phenomena and instances and uh, examples in each of these countries that are peculiar, but stepping back from it, we see a, a range of different patterns and similarities between the, the issues you're facing. I'd be interested, just uh, any of you in, in any of these uh, locations, where do you situate the problem? I mean, clearly we've got an issue of these platforms are operating uh, in a fashion that is systemically important to communications and to society in each of these nations. Uh, and yet they're simply, what, not spending the money, not hiring the people, uh, not learning the language. What, what do you think of as the kind of key problem? Where do you situate the problem? most and i'll I'll leave that open and Pierre I'll come to you in a second, but I'll leave that open to any of the three of you
2: um okay I will just try and 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 tackle this so i think for me when you speak to the platforms we um when you speak to the platforms the issue about having recurrent content and misinformation for example one of the platform representatives told me you would always have problematic content you'd always have people who are posting fake news and so for me is if you realize this as a platform then what are you doing in terms of and developing long-lasting solutions because just a few trainings and things like this is not going to work but really just i think the problem is in the investment so for me i think it's You recognize that there is a problem. You recognize that it's a systemic problem, but you're not willing to devote the resources that are needed to then tackle the problem. If you need to engage stakeholders so that you can together figure out the solution, which is what our local coalition is trying to do, then that is something that you want to engage in. But you cannot wish the problem away. You have to then realize that if, for example, I'm Twitter and we're getting these decisions wrong, we need to figure out what is the problem. Um, If it is the fact that we don't have this context, then how do we then create this um, capacity within our organization? How do we then also find cost-effective ways of doing it, if that's the point? But the idea is that they are wishing away the problem and not intentionally spending the resources or designing effective solutions to deal with the problem.
4: I would add to some point on that question. So in my observation, I would like to take it like two sides of the coin. One coin is... Intentional. the other coin is being unintentional. So I think social media companies, they have their business interest. So they might not want to take some content moderation decisions because of their business interest. That is one uh, side of the coin, being intentional of not taking care enough of the uh, content moderation problems in uh, various different countries, in non-English speaking countries. But on the other hand, I also think that sometimes these social media platforms are really not knowing where to go, which stakeholders group that they need to consult because of the various different sides of uh, opinion of the content in question. So who are the uh, legitimate civil society organizations that we need to talk with? which uh, government act- actors or bodies that we should talk with so that we know the truth in, in any content in question. So I think this information related studies, people often differentiate between the, the motivation of being intentional and unintentional that they don't know that they spread some disinformation. I think it could also apply to this context of content moderation and online content governance
3: issues. I would, uh, would agree with, with both, uh, Shirley and, and Catherine. I, I really think it's, uh, it's a business decision of, uh, where to really put attention to what, what the focus, uh, would, would be for, for these companies. Despite the fact that these, uh, companies are taking benefits out of being, uh, global companies. Obviously, like, you know, to, to engage in so many countries in the world, I mean, uh, virtually all the countries in the world, and uh, to be accessed by such a large population all over the world as uh, financial um, benefits for them. But at the same time, they don't want to take responsibility of the fact that they also influence uh, virtually every single person who access their platforms. So it's, it's definitely a business decision, a profit-driven decision, in my view.
0: Pierre. You have, in this sort of summary report, tried to kind of generalize and find uh, the patterns in each of these uh, three studies and to come out with recommendations of what you think should happen. Um, Could you kind of briefly go through those for us?
1: Yeah, sure. I think there are two levels of recommendations that I can speak about. The first one is, well, it's something that we've mostly done through a reference to the Santa Clara principles, which is the name of a set of principles that were developed and adopted by international civil society organizations in, in relation to content moderation and international human rights law. And it's, it's a, a set of principles that are there to sort of guide companies in, in improving their practices and, and bring them in line with international standards on free speech and, and other fundamental rights. And, and the key principle in the Santa Clara principles for us has been the one of cultural competence, which means that content rules should be accessible to people in their local language. All the procedures, all the appeals mechanisms should be also accessible. Uh, they should be effective, first of all, but they should also be accessible in local languages, and then the mechanisms doing content moderation. Again, there might be algorithms and they might be human beings, but they need to understand the local context. That starts with the languages once again, but it's also a question of being able to make sense of words into the historical, social, cultural, political context. So that, that's, that's a complex question. And, and I think to some degree, it's a question of the, uh, the real world catching up on the metaverse. And, and companies having to understand that they cannot escape geography and that they will have to uh, take into consideration what's going on in each country in order to make content moderation decisions that simply make sense. Um, and, and so that, that that really is the first level of recommendations, uh, the Santa Clara principles, cultural competence essentially. Um, and then there's, um, on a more practical level, there's a, a solution that we would like to, to test and it's the idea of uh, helping uh, local civil society actors come together as a national, national coalition on freedom of expression and content moderation. And to some degree, that leaves on the side the issue of public authorities. There actually has also been a series of reports uh, commissioned by UNESCO in in this project on the legal framework and role of public authorities. But our focus really is on on the relationship between civil society actors, local stakeholders and the social media companies. Um, And so the idea of a coalition is to look for a win-win solution. If they come together as a national coalition, then um, civil society actors would provide sort of a one-stop shop for social media companies. So it would be easier for social media to sort of, uh, they would know who to call. You know, there would be one person to speak to, one organization to speak to, and they could. Gather information about the context, about how to better moderate content, taking taking the complexity of local context into into consideration, and that could, on the other hand, be a way for local actors to gain a voice in the conversations about content moderation decisions that impact their society. Um, so that that's the idea. Um, but of course, a coalition is not something that can be imposed from the outside. It's just something that we can propose to local actors. And that's going to be the next steps of the projects, um, working with a series of, uh, a group of uh, national stakeholders in each of the three countries to, to develop this coalition and, and find a way to make sure that it's a, a balanced organization that makes sense for, for everyone. And, and of course, it's one of the key dimensions of that is that the work of that coalition should be informed by international standards on freedom of expression and and other fundamental rights.
0: Perhaps just to kind of take, you know, Catherine in particular's assessment of the problem, the lack of investment. When you talk about these coalitions and you talk about putting these together, of course, it's an enormous amount of labor, essentially, that's going into trying to defend the information ecosystem uh, in these particular nations, but also, you know, perhaps globally. Um, You know, here in the United States, I've been involved in conversations just in the last few days about how much money uh, and time is being spent trying to defend against false election claims, uh, the types of harassment and abuse that's being levied at election workers, seeing very similar things with public health officials and medical workers, and with regard to the COVID 19 crisis and sort of conspiracy theories leading to violent threats, even against doctors and nurses. Um, so there's a real cost. There's a lot of money uh, and effort that's going into kind of confronting misinformation, conspiracy theories on social media. Um, you're calling for more. Uh, where does the money come from to support those activities? How do we make that work? And you know, is this just the way it is going forward in social media? We're going to have to have these permanent structures in place to essentially clean up these for-profit platforms.
1: It's it, The question of funding is a complex one and it it can it could be answered differently in different countries. Uh, it, it's also a matter of, of seeing what are the resources of, of local organizations, what resources they can have access to, what are the interests of donors. And of course, there's also the consideration that, that is sort of, of obvious is that uh, social media companies are very profitable companies. Um, so maybe to some degree, some of that profit should go back uh, to the countries and to ensure that they um, do no do no harm, or at least contribute to uh, you know mitigating harms that can result from from the massive circulation of uh, content that that is that is problematic. None of the issues um, regarding the so called harmful content on social media is easy. Disinformation is complex. Hate speech is also very complicated. What we are really trying to look at is there is a gap between global companies and national civil society and bridging that gap, having an engagement that would be transparent and that would be stable, solid, sustainable, I think could do a lot towards improving content moderation systems. So that's why we're talking about a a win-win solution. Whether you're talking about the sustainability of, of journalism in the online context, whether you're looking at disinformation in other ways, or whether you're looking at gender violence, If there is a forum where social media platforms and local civil society can speak together, I think that can only serve to improve content moderation. And I also think that it's a necessary step uh, towards improving content moderation systems and practices.
0: Catherine, Roberta, Shirley, if the executives of social media platforms were listening to this podcast or on this call with us right now, what would you most want them to know about your country of of focus? And what would you most want those civil society groups uh, to think or do as a result of the results that you've put together here?
4: So I think if we are talking about online content governance model, the only initiative that is not coming from law or regulations produced by governments is only the Facebook oversight board. So this civil society coalition at the local level could serve as a new potential and promising content governance model, actually. But I realized that when I did this research that social media representatives in Indonesia are worrying about what these things are all about. Will there be any implications to our business, to our decision-making process in our companies? So I would say to these social media executives that they should see this coalition as an innovative and promising model of content moderation governance model that could help social media companies not to carry all the burdens in doing and assessing content moderation decisions. But the civil society groups, they could actually add the democratic deficits in social media doing all these content moderation decisions to get to the transparency and accountability of these social media companies. And if I may speak to the civil society organizations and actors in Indonesia, I would say that I realize that there are different kinds of groups with different interests if we are talking about civil society. But I would emphasize to them that we should be clear of the overall vision and mission, the shared goals of having social media being used in a peaceful, and in a peaceful way in Indonesia. So we should stick to this shared goal so that we should not be concerning about the nitty-gritty of the debates, of the fights among each other.
3: Yes, uh, if I had that opportunity today after the publication of our report, I would really focus on the fact that any decision uh, in relation to to content moderation uh, obviously has implications on uh, free speech, on on the right to freedom expression of of users, but of society more generally, but also can have real life implications. Any decision can actually shape um, the composition uh, of, of societies, the, um, the ability of, of creating peace, of creating um, peace in a sustainable way as well, given that we already know social media companies really have a strong influence um, to shape um, opinions across countries, across societies. Uh, and especially in a country like Bosnia and Herzegovina, where um the societal cohesion is so fragile, decisions over counter moderation can really make uh, a difference uh, towards any direction uh, in relation to 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 peace, uh, sustainable peace in the country. Uh, there is we also um there are elections coming up in in Bosnia and Herzegovina on october the second. Uh, so uh, once again, uh, social media platforms try to focus their uh, attention to specific countries at times of, for example, elections that we, we were saying before. So it could be a test, but at the same time, it's important that uh, any attention, any focus on these issues is, is taken on a sustainable and long uh, term uh, as much as possible. And if I could address every society in the countries really to but we we have seen a lot of uh, enthusiasm by all uh, actors that our researcher interviewed in Bosnia and Herzegovina to join um, a local coalition on moderation and freedom expression. And my maybe my uh, suggestion or what I would like uh, to see or to suggest them is to really uh, try to work uh, in a cohesive way uh, towards uh, the same goal because um, it's it's a matter that really has. Um, implications for everybody despite any difference or any
0: Catherine
2: I think for me I would say um three things Poor content moderation decisions impact the work negatively impact the work of civil society so for one I would ask them to make sure that they have effective remedies that people could actually use and get redress from from my country and then the second I would say is um, the government that's coming into power is also one that has is aware of the use of social media as a tool to shape public opinion and so they need or we and because this is a multi-stakeholder coalition it's imperative to recognize the need to have free opinions on social media platforms and as for the coalition I think what what I would say is if the coalition has is multi-stakeholder it has the participation of many um civil society groups doing different things civic tech and civil society work and academics and I think this presents such a unique idea to engage the coalition in trying to de- if if for example a platform was struggling with what capacity it would need or what um, engagement it would need to design a local approach to content moderation for Kenya, the coalition is one of the easiest way to go about it if you're thinking about um, what are your staffing needs, your language needs, your everything needs um, and needs assessment with the coalition is a, is a very good thing for, for you to for a platform to consider and so I would urge them to actually take advantage of this opportunity to design probably a localized approach for Kenya that they could use in in probably different countries. Um, But as for the coalition, I would also encourage the members to really see this as an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to contribute to um, our own free free expression ecosystem.
0: Pierre, maybe a last word from you. Where does this work go next? Uh, What will you do in future?
1: Two things. So the the similar research is going to be conducted in Colombia by our colleagues from Article 19 in Brazil and and a local consultant. Um, The report should be available around March next year. And in the three countries that we've discussed today, we're going to work with a group of local civil society stakeholders in order to try and build this national coalition on freedom of expression and content moderation. Um, So that's going to be lots of negotiation, discussions, building a governance uh, structure for a coalition that makes sense for everyone that serves uh, human rights and freedom of expression. And yeah, so fingers crossed, we'll we'll get there and we'll see those coalitions engage into into work that hopefully will be a way to engage uh, sustainably and transparently with uh, social media platforms.
0: I wish you the best with that work. And Shirley, Roberta, Catherine, Pierre, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much, Justin.
0: That's it for this episode. Hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at or find us on Twitter at TechPolicyPress. Thanks to my guests, thanks to Article 19's Michael Castor, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening.
3: Tech Policy Press.